Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. I'm Ben Jackson, sitting in for Alyssa Milano, who is recovering from COVID. This week, we're welcoming Bill McKibben back to the show. Bill is the author of more than a dozen books, including the bestsellers Falter, Deep Economy, and The End of Nature, which was the first book to warn the general public about the climate crisis. His new book, The Flag, The Cross, and The Station Wagon, a graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened, is now available. The United Nations warning Monday humanity has less than three years to slash greenhouse gas emissions nearly in half in order to prevent the most catastrophic effects of the climate crisis. This neighborhood is mostly too, completely too, insufferably white. But it's just the way things are here. It doesn't mean we're racist. I saw, you know, dozens and dozens of pickup trucks with, uh, you know, uh, explicatives against Joe Biden. Uh, on the back of them, uh, Trump flag, and some cases just dozens of American flags, which, you know, uh, is also just disturbing because essentially the message was clear. It was, this is my country. This is not your country. The media is going to lie about you and label Christian nationalism, and they're probably going to call it domestic terrorism. I'm going to tell you right now, they're the liars. And if anybody's a domestic terrorist, it's the radical left. They are the domestic terrorists. We could even say the Democrats. Hey, this is Bill McKibben. I'm spending my time organizing thirdact.org for progressive action by people like me over the age of 60. We've actually um, seen a lot, and we're not willing to see any more of the kind of craziness that's destabilizing our planet and our democracy. Sorry, not sorry. Bill, welcome back to Sorry Not Sorry. I want to start off right with your new book, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. And you begin your book talking about your childhood in Lexington, Massachusetts. And I wonder if you would just tell us a little bit about that upbringing and why you think that time in Lexington is such a good lens to look through when you examine what's gone wrong and what continues maybe to go wrong in America. I think it's because it seemed like everything was going so right. I moved to Lexington when I was 10 years old in 1970. We moved into the suburbs. And in so doing, we joined really one of the great American exoduses or something of all time. Between the end of World War II and 1970, about 85% of the population growth in the country was in the suburbs. And Lexington was a perfect example. My parents brought a home for $30,000 that sat halfway down a street, literally called Middle Street. It would have been 
impossible to be any more middle American, especially since Lexington, of course, was the place where the first battle of the American Revolution had been fought. I spent my summers giving tours, wearing a tricorn hat to visitors who arrived in town. So to me, really the kind of modest paradise that we inhabited seems like a pretty good place to start trying to figure out what went so disastrously long in American life, society, politics, economics over the intervening five decades that's taken us from a world where that seemed like it was going to be the sort of slowly expanding modest paradise for more all the time into a bitterly divided, hideously unequal country that sits on a fast warming planet whose civilization suddenly is in question. It does seem a far cry from that post-World War II space age. Everything seems hopeful if you are the right demographic for that hope to where we've landed today. And you talk about that quite a bit throughout the book, but early on, you you have these two things that you identify as thing one and thing two that were important events that occurred in your lifetime that you think sort of set the stage for both your understanding of this and maybe a little bit about for where the nation was, where it was heading. And I wonder if you would just tell our listeners a little bit about those two things. Sure. They occurred within a few months of each other in 1971 in Lexington. And one was very famous. And emblematic of all that was going on, the rapid expansion of rights for women and gay people, the first Earth Day, and the anti-war movement. In this case, Vietnam veterans against the war, led by a then young, lanky, handsome John Kerry, arrived in Lexington to camp on the battle green as a part of their protest. And when the founding, when the town fathers of Lexington decided not to let them do that and to have them arrested, Hundreds of townspeople, including my father, a mild-mannered business reporter, went down to get arrested with them. It was the largest civil disobedience action in Massachusetts history uh, up to this day. And as such, it seemed to me, in my impressionable 11-year-old mind, to be emblematic of that kind of um, liberating moment, transformational moment. Surely we were going to move beyond all that the war represented. That same year, however, and I didn't really know about this until I started doing research for this book, the town of Lexington took a referendum, a vote of all the townspeople on whether or not to have a very small and very modest affordable housing project in this town. And though everybody, every official in the town came out in favor of it, all the churches, the select board, the chamber of commerce, so on, when people were left in the privacy of the voting booth, They voted by a two-to-one margin not to have any affordable housing in the town. And I think that really that presages much that's come since. The tax revolts that we saw developing later in that decade, like Proposition 13 in California, or ultimately the election of Ronald Reagan and the um, enshrinement of the idea that it was the individual that counted that we should each be trying to get ahead as best we could, that markets would solve all other problems, the kind of folly that's taken us down the road we're in. Those choices were both embryonic in 1971 in this one town, and I'm afraid that the second one was the one that really has dominated my lifetime. I live just a few towns away from Lexington, and 
in my town in Natick and in the surrounding towns, this fight over affordable housing still continues. And it's 52 years from that vote in Lexington and these wealthier suburbs outside of major cities seem to continue to have this fight about whether to allow people who are either not white or who don't have the resources to afford wildly overvalued homes from coming into their communities. The New York Times headline sums up the latest uh, fear-mongering tweet by the president in the run-up to November, quote, Trump plays on racist fears of terrorized suburbs to court white voters. In a series of tweets yesterday afternoon, the president wrote in part, quote, I'm happy to inform all of the people living in their suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood. And I wonder what you, if you could just talk a little bit about what you think that says about us as both suburb dwellers and just as a country as a whole. I think what it says is that we really bought into this myth of kind of hyper-individualism and every man in his own castle. And if you wanted to get ahead, you should go make some money yourself and so on. And rejected a lot of the mutual kind of consensus society. The rising tide lifts all boats that brought us out of the depression and through the war into the immediate post-war years. Race was probably the place where it foundered. Although I don't really think that Lexington, even then, was a pretty liberal town. Martin Luther King had come to give a talk two or three years before at the high school and been mobbed, you know, adulation everywhere. I think if there'd been a segregated lunch counter in Lexington, people would have lined up to integrate it. But that was different from interfering with the wealth accumulation machine that is the American suburb. And people were not willing to make that shift. And that's been writ large, but that's the story of our time. 1978 was the year I got out of high school. And it was also the year when inequality in America was at its lowest point, the great, what the economists call the great compression of wealth that had followed World War II ended in 1978. And since then, we've been getting more unequal every year to the cartoonish point now where two or three of our gazillionaires have more money than the bottom half of the American population. But that was the pivot those years in the 1970s. And I'm afraid it, what it means is we have an extraordinary amount of unfinished business. I think that people of my generation may have thought that we'd seen the solving, or at least the beginning of the solving of some of these problems. You know, the civil rights movement, we did pass the Voting Rights Act and give everybody, at least for a few decades until the Republicans got to work recently, a chance at least to vote. But it turned out that wasn't enough to guarantee people any kind of equal place in our society. We may have thought that we'd really addressed some of the environmental issues. We passed after the first Earth Day, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, and the air and water got a little cleaner, but didn't slow anyone down in buying ever bigger houses and ever bigger cars to drive between them. And as a result, we now have an environmental crisis, global warming, that makes the stuff we dealt with in the 60s look like child's play. There are deep currents. We made some deep choices, and now we're in a really large hole, and we better dig out fast, I guess.
Yeah, something you just said reminded me of part of the book that you, or something that you wrote in the book that I just went and looked up, because I think it's a really interesting framing of the suburbs that I had not encountered before. And you write, we think of a suburb as a place without industry, but in fact, the suburb is itself an industry creating massive amounts of wealth through the building of homes and the escalation of property values. And I wonder, you were just talking about generations and thinking that we had solved these, and that seems to be a continuing pattern of generational problems that one generation thinks they fixed something, but yet we're leaving ever escalating problems to the next. And I wonder if you think that this was an unintended consequence of the suburb in creating this industry, or if it just was a byproduct, or where did that come into being of the suburbs as an industry? I think it was mostly... Some of it, anyway, was the part about prosperity and it's especially its connection to our environmental woes was pretty unintended. If you think about the American economy post-World War II, the project to which we've devoted most of our wealth has been the project of building bigger houses farther apart from each other. Tens of millions of people moved to the suburbs. I lived in one, Levittown, Long Island. If you were a GI, no money down and you could buy a home for $33 a month. If you were not a GI, I think, I think it was 6,000 bucks down. Refrigerator, beautiful bedroom, a driveway, a carport, trees, a little bit of land. And that seemed logical or something at the time. And people liked it as I did, with your backyard and a school system and so on and so forth. But it led inevitably, as it turned out, to the consumption of extraordinary amounts of energy. The numbers are really staggering. By 1970, America, with 4% of the world's population, was consuming more than a third of all its energy. And most of that was to push cars around between houses out in the suburbs. That and the industrialization of China have been the two big spikes in the production of greenhouse gases. And the American one's bigger than the Chinese one, historically. So it was a remarkable a remarkable amount of leverage, it turned out, exercised by a relatively small number of people over a relatively short period of time. So I want to just shift gears for just a minute, because much of the book lives in the past half century. But you did talk earlier about being a, a tour guide on Lexington, um, the Lexington Battlegrounds. And you talk in the book quite a bit about that sort of connection to American history. And you write about it that particularly about some of the people we think of as our American heroes, George Washington and Franklin, and their connection to the industry of enslaving people. And that seems to be a legacy that is becoming unteachable in parts of the country. And, and in many of the places that this is becoming unteachable seems to be governed by the beneficiaries of the legacy of the last 50 years politically. And I'm wondering if there's a connection there and what you think about the importance of being able to teach that history and fixing our problems. I think it's a very straightforward connection. I don't think the stuff about critical race theory is really about worrying that your four-year-old will feel guilty about something. It's worrying that your four-year-old will start to make you feel guilty about something. And we have much to feel guilty about, though I'm not completely convinced that's always the best emotion. But for me, the education was remarkable. As I said, I knew a fair amount about the history of the American Revolution because I'd been a tour guide for many years and really thought I knew a lot about Lexington. Then I started researching this book and I was, because of course, Paul Revere is an important figure in the story of that day. I was rereading his account of 
his ride. He'd written it 20 years afterwards, and he was describing trotting on his horse through Charlestown, and he encountered a British patrol, he said, right at the point where Mark was hanging in chains. And then he just went on to tell the rest of the story. I never noticed that before. I didn't know anybody else had ever noticed it. I did the research I could, and it turned out, here's what it referred to. There'd been a slave in Boston named Mark Codman, who had a particularly cruel master who he poisoned to kill. And instead of being tried for murder, he was tried for high treason. And after they'd drawn and quartered him, they put his body in an iron cage, a gibbet, and they hung it above Charlestown Common, where it stayed for the next four decades, with his body just hanging there. Reading that, you have no choice but to think a little bit differently about people, the people who inhabited that place and what their definitions of freedom and liberty and things were. I don't think that means one rejects the importance of their um, contribution. In some ways, the Battle of Lexington was the first battle against a kind of colonialism and imperialism and the idea that kings should rule over us and so on. So important, but tempered, deeply tempered by the fact that clearly wasn't for everybody, and not just down south. There in Boston, in the heart of Puritan Yankee New England. And, you know, I've lived here my whole life, and that is a story I have not heard. So that it, it's striking. Along those lines, you talk a lot about the idea of patriotism, I think, in the book, particularly this, this sort of triumvirate you've come up with, patriotism and faith and prosperity, that you identify as the flag and the cross and the station wagon. And you write that you're curious if the use of that trinity can or should be reclaimed in the fight for a fairer future. Can you talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to look at those three particular elements and how they've been currently appropriated or misappropriated in this country? Sure. I think that they were the three distinctive things in certain ways about America at that time. A sense of our righteousness as a country, very consensus Christianity that encompassed almost all Americans, and this prosperity that the world had never seen before. The first two, the flag and the Bible, it seems to me that progressives probably should not have surrendered quite as easily to the right as they have. For example, a recent 2020 Pew Research poll had 76% of evangelicals saying they agree with President Trump on all or many issues, with 81% saying Trump fights for what I believe in. 81% was also the rate of support that Trump got from evangelical Christians in the last election, though this rate has been pretty steady for Republican presidential candidates for a while now. Obviously, as I just pointed out, American history comes with all kinds of stains and all kinds of divisions and traumas, and those need to be accounted for. And if and as we account for them, then perhaps we can recapture some of the things that really were good about American history. This new idea of egalitarianism that went deeper than it had gone in other places around the world previously, for instance. The extent of which America was a liberal Protestant nation in the 1950s and 60s and 70s can't be overstated. More than half the country belonged to what we would call mainline denominations, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Congregationalists, what religion in America really was, with a lot of other people, of course, who belonged to the Catholic Church. And that 
has changed as dramatically as anything else that ever happened in this country over the last 50 years. Those are now relic denominations with about 15% of the population. And Christianity has come to be represented by these bizarre, intolerant, and weird mega churches of the right who, for my money, have literally nothing to do with the Gospels, which, like American history, are flawed but remarkably radical documents. Look, theoretically, Christians worship a guy who told people to give everything they have to the poor, to turn the other cheek. It's about as radical a witness as there can be. So having lost these two things to the right in this country, what are we left with? A kind of We're left with that prosperity, but that prosperity turns out to have been deeply limited too by our inability to share it in useful ways. So now we're at a point where 70% of the financial assets in the country belong to those of us over 60 compared with about 5% for millennials. The divisions between race are obviously stark, but also generationally between urban and suburban and rural America. We took all these things that could have been unifying and turned them into things that have driven us ever further apart. Yeah, I think a lot of people who know you from your environmental work, sort of a, a science perspective might be surprised to hear you're talking about religion and about Christianity. It's one of those things that we very rarely put together with the progressive movement, despite pretty strong roots of the progressive movement in Christianity. And you write that no single change in our culture during my life, say perhaps the rise of the internet and social media, has meant more than the loss of mainstream Christianity's power and authority in American life, where we've gone from a place where it's central to our identity to a place it's marginal. And what do you think some of the changes are? How did that change America? What was the influence that it had and where did we lose it? What's it doing to us? Truthfully, one of the things that we've really lost is a kind of headquarters for a lot of progressive organizing. If you go back and look at the 1960s, the Black church was obviously playing a huge role in the civil rights movement. And the Black church is a different story, not mine to tell. But the white mainline Protestant church was important here too. In a place like Lexington, as I point out, it was behind all the efforts to do good things in terms of ending the war or spreading affordable housing or whatever it was. And that was one of the reasons that it got rejected. It asked a good deal too much of people, more it turned out than they wanted to hear. It turned out that people were more interested in their treasure and keeping it without feeling guilty than they were in listening to too much nonsense about sharing things and so on. So I, I think that's been a huge loss. It's very true that on the left, you don't tend to encounter that many people who are at least among the sort of leaders and thinkers and things who think of themselves as religious. On the other hand, it remains true that when we organize big protests and demonstrations and things, the people we can most count on to show up often are wearing collars or coming from whoever's left in church. So that's been a big change. And I think what happened was this rise of individualism. We were told, as Reagan told us, to solve our own problems economically. It's now common knowledge that our welfare system has itself become a poverty trap, a creator and reinforcer of dependency. And that's why last year, in my State of the Union message, I called for an overhaul of our welfare system. Since that time, I've sent to Congress a carefully designed package of proposals 
that rejects the old federal approach of sweeping solutions dictated from Washington. The central point of our new proposal, as outlined in our earlier study, Up From Dependency, and now embodied in our legislative proposal, the Low Income Opportunity Improvement Act, is a provision that will allow states and localities to test new ideas for reducing welfare dependency. So the Jerry Falwells and things of the world told us to solve our own problems spiritually, that it was our own personal salvation that was at issue, and that's what the Bible was about, and so on and so forth. I think that's theologically wrong and societally dangerous, as it turns out. You talk about sort of tongue-in-cheek, but also about the history of the song Kumbaya, and that there's not a place in American society, or at least in suburban society, that you sit around and sing the same song together and hold hands in community in a way that was normal prior to these changes that you address in there. And I do think that is a, a loss that we've experienced in a way that really hasn't been reckoned with, that what churches were for altruism and community have in many ways, in many parts of the country, ceased to be about that. And I think that's really bad for us. I think there's no doubt. This is not to say that those churches were in any way perfect. They were reflections of and creatures of the kind of consensus establishment culture, so on and so forth. But I I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue that their decline has made us a saner people. Look, we're having this conversation now in part because I think it feels to everyone like something has really gotten broken in our society. The last few years, even the last couple of weeks, just seem like constant reminders that a kind of powerful dysfunction has fallen over us. And you can figure out some of its roots in political science and how we organize congressional districts or who gets to donate to campaigns or things, but some of it lies in this deeper realm of who we imagine ourselves to be. And one of the reasons that I find it pleasurable to be organizing with people my age at the moment is that they all can remember a world that worked a little better than the one we're in now, where there was some more possibility of just a a, a kind of basic civility and function that let us talk about things. And I don't know whether we can get back to that or not. Truthfully, part of me doubts it. But if we're going to, we better understand how it went up in smoke. And, you know, it's so just obvious to me, and you mentioned the last couple of weeks where we've had multiple mass shootings. In the past year, we've seen a near insurrection over the government, arguments over, arguments over reality, right? That we have differing visions of what is real and differing visions of what it means to be an American, to be patriotic. We have a rapidly rising nationalism, including white and Christian nationalism, and that tends to use the trappings of patriotism as almost an act of aggression against people who don't share that nationalism. But we also have a side which views action and accountability and organizing as patriotism, but which has largely rejected the trappings and imagery that are often associated with patriotism that have been associated with Christianity. You know, that's sort of central to your book. And I'm wondering... What do you think the benefit of reclaiming that vision of patriotism, the imagery of patriotism, of progressive Christianity might do for us if we're able to be successful at it? Well, I think that they're very strong symbols, especially for reaching into the middle of the country, geographically, demographically, educationally, ideologically, everything else. Usually you win by big fights, by winning the middle or some of it. 
So I think it's in just purely pragmatic terms, makes sense to try and figure out ways that connect. I find, in fact, the fact that I'm a Methodist Sunday school teacher actually makes it much easier for me to talk to all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Not at the university where I work, <laughs> it makes it harder to talk, but in a lot of other settings. And so I, it's not that I think this is the only or main thing that progressives need to do, but I do think it's a part of where uh, we need to go if we're going to find the traction that we need. So I think it might be helpful for our listeners to look at some of the existential issues that are facing our country today and frame them in the context of these changes in your trinity of the flag and the cross and the station wagon and some of the historical forces they represent, if that's okay with you, if we could just go through a few of them. We started to talk a little bit about climate. How did these changes impact the way that we're interacting with the climate or not interacting with the climate today? That may be the very clearest connection. The richer we got and the more individualized we got, the more carbon we poured into the atmosphere. And it's just a, there's a quite direct numerical ratio. In fact, I just did a piece for the New Yorker two weeks ago about a new study that demonstrates that if you have 125 grand in the bank because it's being lent out to finance new pipelines and things, it creates more carbon and all the actions of a normal American life, all the driving and cooking and flying and heating and things. Banking is a critical industry in our modern economy that influences every single other sector, including those that directly and significantly contribute to climate change. Many banks have finally recognised this and have issued statements pledging their support to mitigate climate impacts. The Bank of England has openly remarked that climate change is a strategic priority and that financial policies and capitalistic market effects are a suitable response to tackle it. This response is woefully inadequate, as market effects have continued to be an accelerator of climate change. So if you find yourself in that category, and the people that I'm talking about who you know lucked into suburbia at the right moment definitely find themselves in that category, then that's one of the main drivers of climate change. And of course, one of the reasons we can't deal with it is because we've convinced ourselves of this sort of highly individual approach to the world. We end up thinking about the ways that we're going to deal with climate change mostly as a series of decisions about what each of us should eat for dinner or what kind of car we should drive or whatever, instead of a full-on attack on banking system that is making it possible for this to go on. One of the things I say regularly is when it comes to climate change, the most important thing an individual can do is be less of an individual, join together with others in movements large enough to matter. But of course, that cuts against precisely the grain that we've been fighting since the 1980s. It was Reagan's great friend, Margaret Thatcher, who remarked in the 1980s that there is no such thing as society. There are only individual men and women. And that view of the world has mostly won out ever since. And not just among the right-wing conservatives. It was Bill Clinton who told us that the era of big government was over. And that was the dominant intellectual conversion of our time, I think. And so everything around us now reflects it and in profound ways.
Now, when you were last on the show, I believe we were speaking, was it Chase Bank that you were working specifically in opposition to? I'm wondering if since then you've seen any change in the way that banks are managing money in relation to the climate. Are there are they becoming more responsive? Are they paying lip service? Are they ignoring it completely? They're definitely working harder at their greenwashing. When we went to jail in the right before the pandemic hit in the, the lobby of the Chase Bank nearest the nation's capital to launch this campaign, it did it clearly got their attention. Chase finally got rid of their longstanding executive director who'd been the former CEO of, of Exxon, Lee Raymond. And they announced a series of changes that other banks have joined in. But these changes, which uh, you might group under a kind of promise to be something called net zero by sometime deep in the future, maybe 2050, are not the promises we need. They're much too slow, and they allow them to continue lending trillions of dollars to the fossil fuel industry to expand their operations in the meantime right in the years when we're going to break the back of the climate system. So in fact, this mobilization against the banks is increasing dramatically. And Third Act is this new organization we've founded for older people is playing that role here, because as I said before, so much of the money in their vaults belongs to us. So we've got this big pledge going of people who say that if by year's end, there hasn't been real progress from the banks, then we're going to cut up, start cutting up credit cards and switching accounts and so on. And the hope now is that we'll be joined by others. This, this new reporting that I did in New Yorker, one of the things it points to is the fact that these, the way the banks operate raises a big problem for the huge tech companies that have all promised to be net zero too. So when you take into account these news, this new study on the cash effects of their cash being lent out, Google's carbon emissions go up 111%. Apple and Microsoft and things, much the same. It turns out Netflix produces far more carbon from the cash it has in the bank than from all the streaming that it does around the world. That Amazon produces far more carbon from cash in the bank than from all the deliveries and warehouses and everything else that it maintains. So the hope is that it won't just be me trying to annoy Jamie Dimon, the CEO of Chase, that maybe Tim Cook will be up there saying, bro, we can't do what we said we were going to do and go to net zero emissions if you keep doing what you're doing. So we need you to change your policies. Hopefully we can bring in some heavy hitters this way. We shall see. We need to do something fast because and this is the point that I fear sometimes gets lost with climate change. It's not like our other political issues in one way. And that way is it's a timed test. It took us decades to get anywhere near a $15 minimum wage, which was terrible. Lots and lots of people went hungry in the meantime. But it didn't make it harder to do the right thing when we finally got around to it, when we built the campaigns and things to demand it. Uh, and we have to keep doing those because we don't have it everywhere. But climate change isn't like that. If you don't solve it in a timely fashion, then you never solve it because we slip past these physical tipping points from which there's no return. No one has a plan for how you freeze the Arctic up again once it's melted. And the, the world's climate scientists have given us a pretty firm deadline. They, they said if we want to keep the targets we set in Paris seven years ago, we have to cut emissions in half by 2030, which is seven years from now. We have the technology to do it. 
What is the Paris Agreement? The Paris Agreement is a legally binding international treaty on climate change to limit global warming to well below 2, preferably to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. This requires economic and social transformation to face the climate challenges now and moving into the future based on the best available science. The engineers have cut the price of renewable energy 90% in the last decade. That's a huge gift. But at the moment, we lack the political will to make it happen. I think of the, the current water crisis that's happening in the American West, where Lake Powell is at incredibly low levels. The Colorado River is at incredibly low levels, where states are actually having disagreements over where water goes. And there's no, it's seemingly no change in behavior and no change in policy. And wondering how we get past it. How do, what do you think is the thing that will finally wake policymakers up to do the right thing or to get corporations on board? Is there something that will finally change their mind? It's possible that there's some calamity so large that it will wake people up. It's also possible that by the time that happens, it'll be too late to wake people up. The real answer to the question, I think, is more organizing. We've built a pretty big movement around this stuff. And it's gotten us quite a ways. We reached the point where climate change was the top issue in the polling indicated in the last Democratic primary elections and one of the two or three top issues in the general. And Joe Biden ran very hard on climate. And to his credit, he tried in this Build Back Better Act to do something real about that. He got no help of course, from 50 Republican senators, because their party has been owned by the fossil fuel industry for the last couple of decades. The Koch brothers, their biggest players, saw to that. They're our biggest oil and gas barons. But Biden came close. He had 49 votes for the first significant climate legislation that the Congress would ever have passed. Joe Manchin of West Virginia has, of course, been the stumbling block. Joe Manchin took more money from the fossil fuel industry than anybody else in Washington, which is not an easy contest to win, but he won it. And what a return on investment. For their donations, they've blocked hundreds of billions of dollars to jumpstart renewable energy. It's not that Exxon thinks that sun and wind aren't going to win out. They're obviously going to win out. They're much cheaper and cleaner. That's how we're going to run the world in 50 years. But if you're Chevron or Exxon, what you're playing for is maintaining your current business model Another two decades, maybe, because that's about as far forward as corporate America is capable of thinking, it seems. Even that's a stretch. And the price of doing that, if we let them maintain their business model, is clear. We're going to break the planet. We'll run the world on sun and wind in 50 years, but it'll be a broken world. So what can people do right now at home that can mitigate some of the influence that people like Joe Manchin have, that the fossil fuel industry have, that can help push these companies or these individuals or these institutions into doing the things we need to do to prevent real disaster? I think you can't do much by yourself. And truthfully, though it's a very good idea to make your home a more efficient and hospitable place, and I'm proud that I have solar panels all over my roof and so on. I, I don't try to fool myself. That's how we're going to do this. The math no longer works, just one Tesla at a time. So as I said before, individuals have to join with other individuals in movements large enough to create basic change. That's why we've set up all these different organizations, I mean, 350.org, Third Act, 
Fridays for the Future, for Young People, Extinction Rebellion, on and on. Their coalitions stop the money pipeline that focuses on the financial end of this, so on and so forth. We're close. Erica Chenoweth at Harvard has maintained that when you can get three and a half or 4% of a population engaged in a fight, you usually win. We're probably one or 2% of the population that's really active in the climate fight, which is a lot. And it took a lot of work to get there, but we need that again. And we need it soon in order to put enough pressure on these systems that they actually change quickly. Otherwise, the easiest thing in our system is to block change. Our entire political system is set up to make change come very slowly. That's what all those checks and balances are about, to make sure that nothing intemperate happens, or or in this case, that nothing happens. The United States has wasted an unprecedented amount of time on procedural hurdles and partisan obstruction. As a result, the work of this country goes undone. Congress should be passing legislation that strengthens our economy, protects American families. Instead, we're burning wasted hours and wasted days between filibusters. I could say, instead, we're burning wasted days and wasted weeks between filibusters. And so it's going to take mighty movements to move that stone. We have the great gift of all this technology. It's not like we're telling people that they have to go live in a cave. We're telling people, yeah, we need to actually have e-bikes and electric cars. We need to have air source heat pumps. We need to have things that make sense, are available, save money, work better than the things that they replace. But we've got to get there. We've got to get there quickly. We've got to get there over the more or less dead body of the fossil fuel industry. Now, you mentioned a number of organizations that you've started. Is there a place that listeners can go to find out about each of them and how they might be able to join them? Sure. I mean, 350.org is a good general global campaign on climate. If you're young, check out the Sunrise Movement for people under 30. And if you're over 60 or uh, approaching and everybody's moving our direction, then come find us at thirdact.org, which has been remarkable fun in part because people of this generation, as we were intimating earlier, had an interesting first act in their lives. They were around for big transformations. If the second act of their lives was mm, perhaps a bit more focused on consumerism than citizenship, that water has flowed beneath the bridge. And now in their third act, they're emerging with skills, resources, time, and grandkids to try and worry about. And Also, which makes it really fun, many of the cultural icons of that generation are still around, still kicking, and still helping out. Fight me if you will, but one thing our generation can boast is the best music there ever was. And so it's great fun to have be working with Carol King and Bette Midler and Neil Young and Lester Chambers and Patti Smith and on to, to get this done. That's fantastic. And and I really appreciate you doing that. That's one of the things, you know, my folks are in their 70s. And I often hear that the activism world has passed them by, and they still feel like they have stuff to give. So I um, I really appreciate that. I guess a lot of this, both the fractures in our society that have happened over the past half century, the current state of where things exist, the existential dread that looms over so many of us about the climate can feel 
hopeless, but you write that, that you actually didn't come out of this feeling hopeless. So I'd love to know, Bill, what gives you hope? I don't feel it every day. And right now, right this week, the world does feel stuck in ways that are just painful to try and imagine the ways out of. But it has been incredibly inspiring to watch the rise of movements, especially around climate change that I've been carefully involved in, and especially to watch young people standing up. It's fantastic. But it's also not okay to just say, 17-year-olds, you solve this problem. The rest of us need to come on board, and people are, and that's exciting to me. The pandemic was a fraught experience for Americans in many ways, but I do try to hold on to the fact that, I don't know, two-thirds of Americans tried to do more or less the right thing and look out for their brothers and sisters and take common sense steps, to, which wasn't great. I mean, two-thirds of people trying to cooperate to address a deadly pandemic is not exactly what you want, but I try to hold that in mind that all is not lost and that there are some things to build on there. So we shall see. And truthfully, we shall see, I think, on these truly important questions, I think we're going to see over the next you know, five years. I think that's going to be a period of extraordinary threat for American democracy, and I'm not certain we can make it through it. And I know it's going to be a period of extraordinary threat to the basic physical stability of the planet. And, you know, we shall see whether we can even begin to deal with that or not. So I guess what I'm saying is, even if you're not feeling 100% hopeful about things, suck it up for a few years. Let's do everything we can. And then we'll stop and see where we are. And I'm not telling you there may not come a time to just despair. And I'm not telling you that there won't come a time when I'm just going to go sit on the porch and drink bourbon, and that'll be that. But for the moment, we've got reason to be engaged. So we better be. Bill McKibben, you give us hope. So thank you so much for all that you do and for being part of the podcast. A great pleasure. Thank you for all the work that you guys do week after week. Young people are really leading the way now on climate change and on other progressive issues like the new civil rights movement around race and things. That's great, but they need the backup of older people who have much of the political power and much of the economic power in this country and in this world. That's why we're forming Third Act, thirdact.org. Uh, a, a progressive organizing group for people above the age of 60, the boomers, the silent generation. Um, people say that we age, as, as we age, we become more conservative. And there's a little bit of data to back that up. But I think in the case of this generation, it needn't be true. Let's talk about systemic inequity. Racism, explicit and implicit, has always been deeply ingrained in our nation. The ability to own people based on their skin color was so fundamental to the founding of this country that it was enshrined in our Constitution with a specific prohibition against changing that part of the document for years after it was adopted. From slavery through Jim Crow, poll taxes, the drug war, and felon disenfranchisement, we've built a nation on the labors of enslaved people and a culture rooted in denying the descendants of those enslaved people free and fair participation in the American way of life. 
Our entire national infrastructure is built with this in mind. And now, the ability to teach this fundamental fact, the truth of our own history, is under siege in our country. It has to stop. We just can't let the Ron DeSantis's and the Glenn Youngkins of the world perpetuate the injustices in America by taking away our ability to teach about them. As Bill just demonstrated, so much depends on the understanding of and action to correct those flaws. There are fewer than six months to the next election. Are you working for a candidate yet? Knocking doors, making calls, you can do so much of it right from your own home. Don't wait one more day to do something. We're just about out of time. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.